You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 8th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Why is China's president visiting Saudi Arabia? How discontented is the UK's winter going to be? And the results of Monocle's annual soft power survey are in. Put the champagne on ice, Belarus. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Terry Stiasny and Yossi Meckelberg will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus our On This Day historical series will look at Greece's long-standing inability to make its mind up about its monarchy. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by the author and political journalist Terry Stiasny and by Yossi Meckelberg, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and a lecturer in international relations at the University of Roehampton. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, We will do, as we have been these last few weeks, a spot of World Cup-related light introductory banter. Um, Yossi, first of all, do you like England's chances against France on Saturday or not? Yeah, I (laughs) do. This is the most dangerous thing, and then come penalties, and then, mm-hmm. you know, we know what happens, penalties with... Yes, but I do, yeah, I think See, I, it I, would be I, good. I'm just clinging to the parallel universe in which Australia would be looking forward to crushing the Netherlands like bugs before sauntering through the semi-final to World Cup victory. So close we were. Actually, we weren't all that close last Saturday, but no one can prove otherwise. Terry, are you you excited about England's chances? I'm quite excited. I've I've got a sneaking sort of love for France. I'm generally quite a Francophile, so I'm quite excited (laughs) about it. You'll be happy either way. I'll be happy either way. Are are you going to be one of those unbearable people who turns up wearing a scarf which is half and half? No, I'm, but I'm going to be watching it in my own house. Are you going to paint... But I won't be going, going, come on Mbappe, because I do, I think he's great. Uh, are, are you going to paint half your face with the cross of St. George and the other half yes, with the tricolour? Yes, I might tricolor? do that. that I, think, a, I think I could that do that. Would be yeah. a, I mean, you would only need, you would need the same set of paints. Yeah, would just get red, you there. White. Three colours, it's <laughs> yeah. fine. Um, I look forward to seeing the pictures. <laughs> uh, we will start, however, properly with Russia and the United States and the American basketball player Brittany Griner, who might well have imagined that she would be traded at some point in her career, possibly for an up-and-coming point guard plus draft picks. She would not, until quite recently, have pictured being swapped for an infamous Russian arms dealer. However, exactly this exchange has been agreed. Greiner, who has spent most of this year in Russian prisons after being arrested in a Moscow airport for carrying cannabis oil, is going back to the US and travelling in the opposite direction is Victor Bout, who has done 12 years in American jails. I'm joined for more on this by Mark Galliotti, a Russia analyst and Principal Director at Mayak Intelligence, a consultancy firm focusing on Russia. Um, first of all, Mark, this trade between Brittany Griner and Victor Bout, is it a surprise? I mean, I think it's, it's not a surprise that the Russians have been wanting to do this, but, uh, you know, the actual timing is, given that uh, how little the Americans and the Russians have been speaking to each other of late. Uh, well, indeed so. Um, but does that tell us something about how much contact has still been going on between them, despite what we will refer to as everything? <laughs> yes, it does. I, I mean, look, in a way, we knew this. We know that 
everything from the conversations of the American national security advisor with his Russian counterparts down to more mundane contact, that lines have, have still existed. But in some ways, up to now, all we've had really are reassuring platitudes to that effect. This is one of the very first sort of concrete signs. And although it's obviously a very specific case, and one which the Russians will be very happy with, nonetheless, it is quite a reassuring reminder that some kind of diplomacy still survives in this era. Well, let's look at what Russia has agreed. I mean, the, the case of Brittany Griner has been in the news all year. The case of Victor Bout had rather dropped off the radar. Um, remind our listeners, if you would, who Victor Bout is and why the Russians would be so keen to have him back home. Well, I mean, if anyone has seen the Nicolas Cage film Lord of War, I mean, that was meant to be based around him. He was a, a real symbol, I think, of the kind of chaotic opportunities of the 1990s. He was a Soviet army officer and probably military intelligence asset who in the 1990s snapped up some cheap, rugged old Soviet military aircraft and some presumably also cheap and rugged pilots and he at once became the guy you go to to get anything anywhere, you know, even if it was an aid into the middle of, say, the Rwandan war zones. But at the same time, he clearly was involved in industrial scale arms dealing. So, you know, he seems to have been an entrepreneur, a dealer, as well as a, a Russian agent. And eventually the Americans have been going after him for a long time. But eventually in 2008, a sting operation caught him trying to sell weapons to Colombian drug traffickers. Uh, and the uh, agents carrying out the sting actually said, you know, we will use this to shoot down U.S. pilots. And he said, oh, we, we have the same enemy. So he was arrested in Thailand. He was deported in due course, uh, extradited to the United States and then sentenced to 25 years in a high security prison. And ever since that point, the Russians have been trying to get him back because if nothing else, they have inherited the old KGB's mantra, which is, we will always get our people back home. It might take us a long time, but one way or the other, we will get them home. I mean, Victor Bout has obviously been out of circulation for some considerable while, and I'm sure this is a consideration the United States will have factored in, but is releasing him imaginably any sort of national security risk? It's not really, as you say, I mean, he, you know, Boot has been in prison for too long. His contacts have been burned. His insights will be dated. And maybe if he's lucky, he'll get some kind of sinecure teaching, you know, lecturing to agents back in Russia. The main thing is that he kept quiet. And again, I mean, this is part of the reasons why, why the Russians make this promise to their own agents. You know, he presumably would have had certain, even if it's just simply, you know, information about how he was trained and how he was run, that would have been useful to the Americans. But more to the point, this is a symbol. This is a symbol for Moscow. Because, you know, in effect, they took Brittany Griner hostage. Mm. I mean, she was caught with cannabis, you know, vape cannabis oil in her luggage, which is illegal under Russian law. But under normal circumstances, that means a fine, a short sentence, deportation, something like that, not nine years in a prison colony. So, you know, from their point of view, they basically took the, the opportunity when someone gave them a sort of a, a hostage on a plate, they happily took that and used it to get back one of their own. As far as they're concerned, I think this will be a very good deal. Well, just finally on that, Mark, and I think it's important to remind listeners who may not be all that plugged into American sport that Brittany Griner is no ordinary basketball player. She's the biggest superstar in the women's basketball game in the United States, not just now, but possibly ever. She is a huge, huge 
huge deal. Is it being too optimistic to hope that one of the reasons Russia has agreed to this deal is that they are looking to make contact? They're trying to soften their image. They want to talk to somebody about the other thing. I would love to believe that was true. However, it's not. I think that that is indeed the case. I think it's more that, I mean, after all, they had in a, in a way already had one another hostage, Paul Whelan, who was uh, meant to be a spy, a man with UK, US and Irish citizenship, who they arrested in 2018. But the point is, he clearly wasn't a big enough deal. The thing about Brittany Griner was precisely that she was a sports celebrity. And therefore, there was a huge fan base that frankly was putting a lot of pressure on the White house so in some ways from the russians point of view i think they regarded this as a good deal the white house clearly wanted to you know garner the uh, you know, approval of, of being able to arrange it but the idea that this actually will lead to something more well look if the russians had really been wanting that they could have thrown paul whelan in as part of the deal i mean his his value to them is is, is pretty minimal but on the other hand, they held on to him. So they're clearly thinking about further swaps, possibly with an assassin of theirs who's currently in prison in Germany. So no, this is very hard-nosed rather than some kind of outreach, alas. Mark Galeotti, thank you as always for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. We will go back to our panel now and we will talk about China's president, Xi Jinping. He has not gotten out much these last nearly three years. His first post-pandemic trip overseas was as recently as September to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, since when he has also dropped in on summits in Indonesia and Thailand. Right now, however, President Xi is in Riyadh. The official agenda includes a China and Arab States Summit and a China and Gulf Cooperation Summit, none of which will be any small change. Deals worth north of 29 billion US dollars are due to be signed. But the symbolism is important as well. Neither China nor Saudi Arabia is getting on tremendously well with the United States at the moment. Uh, Yossi, what would the Saudis and China see in each other? Quite a lot. <laughs> uh, for, for China, this is an entry and it's been for a while into the Middle East and, and, and the Gulf. And again, maybe I preempt a bit the issue of soft power because in the West we look at soft power very differently than mm. China. And, and and China looks, and again, if we look to the definition of, 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 of soft power, we look a bit at the culture and values or policies. They have different values, different culture, different policies, but it's under, they don't use hard power in order to enter into most of this place. The way that Saudi Arabia and China look at it, oh, we have the Vision 2030, we have the Belt and Road that can converge. So there is a good reason for them to develop this, let alone there is lots of money to be invested because of the price of energy. So whether it's investing in, in hydrogen energy, whether it's, for instance, China will get big contact with Huawei when it comes to cloud uh, computing. So if you look at this, and at the same time, what you alluded to, it also tells the Americans, if you withdraw from the Middle East and we can't rely on you, there are other players in this game.
Um, Terry, how much of the appeal to this relationship to both the Saudis and the Chinese is that the Saudis know they're not going to get any earache about human rights and the Chinese know they're not going to get any earache about locking large numbers of people up in camps in Xinjiang? Uh, yes, I think that's certainly something that they have both got in common and they, it allows them to, to do the kind of big deals that, that we were mentioning. It, it allows them to say, yeah, we are all about uh, trade, we're about security and we are about other countries not intervening in our own um, internal affairs and we're quite happy uh, to let that go and to you know just to establish a, a relationship on that basis. Um, Yossi the official line from the United States at least we if we assume that the National Security Council spokesperson is speaking for the United States is we are not asking nations to choose between the United States and China. Do we think China sees it like that? No, neither the United States. <laughs> there is the, there is huge difference what you say, which obviously we are not going to dictate another country mm. who they're talking to and how they conduct their, their foreign affairs or economic relations with. At the same time, they are probably not very happy about what's happening in China. And this is part not only in Saudi Arabia, in the Gulf, in other parts of the Middle East, whenever something like this happens, especially when you, you think that one of the major issues for the United States isn't sure energy mm. security. The issue of Iran and, and nuclear, the last thing they want is to see more Chinese involvement there and more independence from some of these countries. They want more American cloud in, in, in the region. This actually will take away. But it's the United States' fault. It's it. it decided to shift its attention elsewhere. That's what happens mm. as a result of it, let alone what happens, for instance, in Afghanistan. Many countries in the Middle East, also between the Israel and the Palestinians, they don't see the United States as a reliable uh, ally. And that's exactly what happens now. Uh, just a quick follow-up thought on this one, Yossi, uh, elsewhere in mm. Gulf diplomacy. Uh, Isaac Herzog, Israel's mm. president, uh, has been visiting the Gulf. Uh, he, he's all about shoring up the Abraham Accords, which, of course, were the great diplomatic triumph, credit where due, uh, of recently mm. returned Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Do you get the sense that the Gulf states might, whatever they might say in public, be actually quite happy to have Netanyahu back? I doubt it. And I think one of the things that leaders within the region will look is actually the World Cup. Mm. And not only because of the football, because <laughs> of the support to the, the Palestinians in different games, whether it's Morocco and Tunisia and other games, while you see they support their team and a lot of the banners, well, mm. we also support uh, Palestine. And I think this is a very powerful message, I think, to the leader. The leadership is very happy to have close relationship with Israel because it makes sense vis-a-vis -vis Iran, economic relation, technology, and, and the rest. But when it comes to the people, their affinity, their support with the Palestinian people, having possibly, uh, potentially the most far-right government in Israel history, is not going to help this relationship. Well, indeed not. But let's look now at the UK, where a great many people are, depending on their general inclination, abandoning Christmas plans entirely, anxiously drawing up plans B through Z, or thanking a combination of a cost-of-living crisis, intransigent government and hacked-off trades unions for sparing them the company of the in-laws. The UK is facing strikes by, and this is not a complete list, railway workers, post deliverers, container unloaders, bin collectors, telecoms, engineers, NHS staff and border force officers. In response, the UK's government is moving to make striking more difficult. Here is the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. 
It's right that he brought up legislation with regard to strikes, and I'm very happy to address it, actually. So, hard-working families right now in this country are facing challenges. The government has been reasonable. It's accepted the recommendations of an independent payroll body, giving pay rises in many cases higher than the private sector. But if the union leaders to continue to be unreasonable, then it is my duty to take action to protect the lives and livelihoods of the British public. And that's why, Mr Speaker, since I became Prime Minister, I have been working for new tough laws to protect people from this disruption. Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, speaking at Prime Minister's Questions yesterday. Um, Terry, what Sunak is doing there is is very much the... It's page one of Tory Prime Minister faced with strikes. You blame greedy unions for ruining the plans of hard-working families, etc., etc. Do you get the sense, though, that that is actually going to fly, or have times and circumstances changed? I think times have changed a certain amount. I think there is generally a fair amount of sympathy for quite a few people who are striking. I mean, I think particularly uh, with the health service, mm. when you look at nurses, ambulance drivers, um, and certain you know, you know the, the post post workers going on strike. Uh, there's a post office near my house, and uh, they're asking people to sort of you know honk if you're supporting the the post the striking postal workers. And pretty much every car going past the, the picket line is kind of hooting their hooting their support. So I think there's an also so, you know, the cost of living crisis, people are saying, well, look, you know, inflation is so high, uh, people actually think it's reasonable to be asking for, for decent pay rises. So I think there is a certain amount of support. Obviously, Christmas does complicate, complicate things. And I think the rail strikes are one thing where they... There, people aren't necessarily quite so supportive, but I think um, during the the working week, because people have just come out of working from home so much, I think it's having less of an impact because people will say, "Our oh, trains are on strike. I just won't go wherever I was going to go. I'll do this from home." Obviously, you can't you can't do Christmas. I mean, you could. We've done Christmas over Zoom the last couple of years. Probably people don't want to do that so much, uh, except of course the ones who do. Oh. Um, <laughs> you'll see the the fever dream of conservatives. Uh, at a moment like this, and it's a bit of a recurring theme in British politics, is the idea of passing laws against uh, striking in some sectors. For example, as they point out, the police cannot strike and nor can the military. So is it outrageous to suggest that, for example, NHS staff are no less essential to the nation's upkeep than the police and military and therefore they shouldn't either? I think it's outrageous. And I think what, you know, what Rishi Singh is trying to do is to drive a wedge. Look, look at the kind of the wording. They are the hard-working people and they are the people, the public, that suffer. But there are 360,000 nurses in this. He, he has rather failed to consider that some of the hard-working families and members of the public are in fact the, nurses. Yeah. Exactly. 115,000 that are postal workers. This is the people. They are the ones that strike. So, of course, you know, if you're a postal worker, you, you rather that the train driver won't strike because then you can take the train. But this is the reality. And as Terry says, people are really hit hard by cost of living. Now, I think the government is not very smart. It's not only about increasing wages. It, there, is, there can be more creative about conditions of working, mm-hmm. different benefits to people. And not just to think about, I give you another 5 10%. This is not going to help because, yes, this will get inflation. But at the same time, you can improve conditions for people and deal with specific different in different sectors where di- different issues. Now, when you look at, for instance, nurses, there are 25,000 left the profession in the last year. This hurts more than if they'll strike for a, for a few days. There are 47,000 unfilled 
position in the, in, at the NHS. This hurts the public that Rishi Sunak, because I assume that many conservatives MPs have private uh, health insurance mm. that the public doesn't have. So as a result, no, it's a basic right to strike. And as a, no one wants to be in the condition that needs health service and people are on strike. But to deprive of them, especially after pandemic, and tell, oh, we would love you to work, but in a condition that you can't even live in the city where you serve. Is another problem with those sorts of laws, Terry, that you are, if you are the government who passes a law, for example, saying that nurses cannot strike, you are rather setting yourself up, aren't they? If they walk off anyway, do mm. you then want to be the government that, 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 prosecutes, that, that yeah. prosecutes or dismisses tens of thousands of NHS nurses? Yes, and also I think compared sort of now and say like the 70s when you had sort of massive industrial unrest in Britain, I think people's perception is not that it's the unions that are to blame that people are in, are complaining about their working conditions because the infrastructure has problems, because the infrastructure is not working. There are problems with the railways actually functioning. There are problems with the way that the hospitals are working in that you can't get people out of hospital beds into social care, that the hospital infrastructure is crumbling. And people understand that some of the workforce are complaining because, you know, the conditions that they're working in and the infrastructure that they're trying to work with is, is a bigger part of the problem than just, you know, just their how much they're paid but just a final quick thought on this one terry um does the gov i mean the government is not in an ideal place here they have been dealt a bad hand uh well you could argue they've been in power long enough that they've rather dealt it to themselves but they do have a case surely that just granting inflation equally wants one furthers further it fuels further inflation and round we go again this time next year that being the case, does the government actually have any good options or given the polling and the fact that there will be another election within the next couple of years, are they just past caring? I mean, I think part, as as you say, that is quite a good argument. They can just say, look, inflation is is forecast to come down again. We've got to be realistic. But they're not really entering into any kind of a negotiation. And that is part of the problem is that, you know, you probably could find a, a landing point somewhere between and you can't necessarily pay everybody every everything that they are asking for but i think what they need to also be trying to do is trying to solve some of the the underlying problems with with things that aren't functioning properly you know which might allow a nurse to say well look okay i'm working in a better hospital so maybe i don't need you know my life is slightly easier than it would have been well let's now do a spot of unabashed cross-promotional pluggery the new edition of monocle magazine is on a newsstand near you now or nowabouts and it contains among much else monocle's annual soft power a survey looking at which of the world's nations has impressed us most in the past year. If you don't want to know the score, look away now, etc. Always wanted to say that, but this year's soft power champion is the United States, which has improved its position with its leadership re-Ukraine, its eternal cultural might, and the fact that its presidency is no longer occupied by a seething clown. Um, Yossi, first of all, United States, a, a deserving winner, do we think? Probably I won't go for the United States. And nah. I think, you know, and I'll explain. Yeah, I it's, I think... Yeah, how, how dare you question our judgment, Yossi? I, I withdraw it all. <laughs> <laughs> Momentarily. No, I'll tell you why, because I think it's not about soft power. In the case of the United States, and I go back and be very boring for a second, mm-hmm. even more than usual, and talking about, not about soft power, but one that moves from soft power to smart power. Mm-hmm. And said so the smart, smart power is the one that you contain, like, uh, include both of them. 
soft power and hard power. And I think in this one, I would put the United States number one, because during the last year, as you mentioned, between the war in Ukraine and the other thing mentioned in this uh, about the United States and having a, a government is ready to engage with the world in a, in a way that it did between 2016 and 22, it's probably number one when it comes to smart power. But when it comes to pure uh, uh, soft power, I think some other countries is doing better. Um, Terry, speaking on behalf of the British people, what did you make of the UK's actually quite solid, respectable placing at eight, up th- a bit from last year? <laughs> I think year? Give, given the year we've had, I think Britain has done Britain has done remarkably well. You could easily have sort of plummeted uh, in in the rankings. One of the things I noticed is there's a remarkable correlation between top soft power countries and countries whose teams got into into the World Cup. Is there, is there any connection with it? So the Italians will be kind of you know they went they they didn't make it into the World Cup and they they just made it into the soft power but they but they fell from their from their last year's position and Ukraine got into the list but, but didn't get into the World Cup so I mean is, is there a correlation maybe foot, I think football probably being serious is is actually a form of, of soft power in terms um, of your you know national impressions of, of your football teams and, and conveying that I, I did write the bit in the soft power spread about my own country Australia which languishes at a wretched 19th and I, I did mention that as Australia's sports stars however are primarily what we are known for in the world and are I think our greatest soft power asset Um, and I did want to ask you both uh, in turn therefore what you think your country's greatest soft power asset is you first Yossi the UK or whichever either or both I think at the end of the more general terms it's really I would look at foreign aid Mm. as percent of the GDP meaning this will be the country and I can't remember top of my head which country I think it's Norway but if you if you look at how engagement with the world in terms of supporting without thinking directly that it benefits you for instance military aid supposed to support mm. your security there are a lot of other issues that you know it's so, it looks like soft power but it's actually self-serving it's kind of the more altruistic side of it. And I think this, if you go and look at the Scandinavian countries, they are much better in doing that. Terry, what do you think? Because we did have, in in unfortunate circumstances this year, quite the soft power circus for the United Kingdom. It it got to lay on its first full-dress monarch's funeral in seven decades. It's slightly related, because my first thought when you said that, my first thought is Paddington Bear, (laughs) which does link in with the Queen, but actually the the sort of that British ability to put on a big pageant, a big show, uh, whether it's, you know, Harry Potter world or, you know, Paddington Bear or that kind of James Bond, you know, that kind of being able to project a really beautifully produced kind of slightly fantastic fantasy world i think that's one of the things we do best well on that note we will move along to something altogether more prosaic in the northern hemisphere it is very much that time of year at which people phone in sick they will do this for one of several reasons last night's christmas party may have gone on a bit they may have noted that it's cold out they may have concluded considering things in the round that they simply cannot be bothered they might even be sick it all got a bit much for the manager of a kansas branch of mediocre italian eatery 
Olive Garden, who emailed employees saying proof of ailment or mishap would be required henceforth, including in said hypothetical situation the presentation of one's recently deceased dog. Um, Yossi, the manager has now been fired, uh, we, we should stress, and Olive Garden's PR people are in full-scale panic mode, desperately hoping something else becomes the catch of the day on social media sooner rather than later. But can we understand her exasperation if she had been presented with a long sequence of employees calling in sick on frankly dubious pretexts? I'm sure there are a lot of pressure in doing that. I just told her earlier that, you know, I was in management at university for many years. And, you know, you're not over the moon when 8 o'clock in the morning you get an email member of staff saying, oh, can we cancel class because A, B, and C? And not always you think this is the best excuse to tell students you're not going to have class. So, and I'm sure in restaurants there are a lot of pressure. <laughs> Who is mm-hmm. going to sell in the restaurant? Who is going to cook? However, when you look some of the quotes... I think there is some issues with emotional intelligence when I, offering... I, I'm not advancing this as a masterclass <laughs> in management. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think there are ways to deal with that and, you know, positive encouragement of people to show up instead of showing as the, this but, manager... But by, for if example, paying them more. Paying, yeah, paying them more, treat them nicely and not tell them if they claim that it was your dog that died, bring the dog with you <laughs> to the restaurant. See, yeah. I, I, I was thinking it would actually be a glorious form of revenge, however, yes. if someone did exactly <laughs> that. Like, uh, Hello, restaurant kitchen, yeah, I come to exactly. work, I my dead dog. With, like, bowling in just as lunch is being served and say, you wanted a dead dog. Um, uh, Terry, should employers basically always take the employee's word for it, though? Um, it's funny, I think our, our bar has slightly shifted on, on terms of sort of calling in sick, because certainly for the last couple of years, it's been, if you're remotely the tiniest bit ill, <laughs> and a little, love of God, yes, don't, come don't come anywhere near the office, please go away, even if you just think you might be a little bit ill. So I think that's kind of, uh, the, the, bar has, the bar has changed, and also, you know, the fact that you sort of can be expected to work anyway, even if you are ill, and even if you are at home. Uh, so I think that probably uh, actually turning up and being present, it's, you know, it's not required quite as much so you can just sort of say yeah I'm, I'm notionally at work and yeah I'm just I'm on I'm working from home <laughs> and you know hope that nobody actually wants to see you I, 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 d- I did want to ask you both um, if you've either yourself phoned in sick on some clearly preposterous pretexts or have been on the receiving end or have heard of such and Yossi you mentioned or alluded to the fact that you may have been in receipt yourself at various points of one or two sick calls where you thought really I'm, I'm, I'm very proud in many years of teaching. I never cancelled class because of being ill, including last week. Uh, so, no, I, I, I don't. But the, you see, there is not a... T- I, I didn't hear from staff things that are completely ridiculous, but sometimes... You're, you're the kind of person Olive Garden is looking for. <laughs> well, as I said earlier, maybe academics should look for an alternative <laughs> career. Maybe this is one of them. Uh, I I remember once having an employee, a a researcher that we had, who just decided that she wasn't going to come into work one afternoon because she needed to get her hair cut. And she she didn't lie about it. She didn't claim to be sick. She just totally said, yeah, no, I'm leaving the office now. I need to go and get my hair cut. And we were all just so astounded that we sort of looked at her and let her go out. That is almost impressive. It's just like (laughs) holding your workplace in such little regard that (laughs) you can't even be bothered thinking of something. Yeah, I'm I'm just getting my hair done. And she didn't Bye. say because she needs to appear on the radio. 
No, no, she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Terry Stiasny and Yossi Meckelberg, thank you both for being here, despite whatever ailments you may be suffering. Um, finally, on today's show, it's time for our On This Day historical series, which this week reflects on Greece's long inability to make up its mind about its monarchy. An argument commonly made against monarchies is that they are fundamentally undemocratic. That the subject people is assigned a head of state by accident of birth in some or other castle and has to live with it, even if, and it happens, the crown ends up perching upon a king or queen who is foolish, mad, corrupt, depraved, drunk, inbred, or any or all of the above. This argument manages to be both true and false. It's true inasmuch as it nails the very essence of monarchies, and indeed what some adumbrate as their virtue, that keeping the gig in one family provides stability and continuity. And it's false in that monarchies can be voted out. Monarchies have been abolished by referendum in Iceland, the Gambia, Bulgaria, we'll come back to that one, Iran, Italy, Rwanda, the Maldives twice, and on December 8th, 1974, Greece. King Constantine II cannot have been entirely surprised by the instruction to hand in his orb and scepter. Fittingly for the country which invented and named democracy as we understand it, Greece's monarchy had always been unusually subject to the popular whim. Greece's modern monarchy had been instituted as recently as 1832 by the London Conference, which followed Greece's winning of its independence from the Ottoman Empire. The great powers decided that Greece should have a king, as was the style at the time, but struggled to find someone who wanted the job. Several European princelings knocked it back. The only real enthusiasm was demonstrated by one Nicholas MacDonald Sarsfield Codded, an Irish claimant to the lineage of the Byzantine Empire's House of Paleologos, who was ignored on the grounds that he was plainly as mad as a badger. Eventually, the Greek throne was palmed off on Otto, the 17-year-old son of Bavaria's King Ludwig I. To his credit, Otto ended up reigning for 30 years. To his discredit, he was overthrown, and though Greeks had wearied of their monarch, they still seemed to like the idea of a monarchy. In a referendum in 1862, Greeks held a plebiscite attempting to elect Prince Alfred, Duke of Edinburgh, second son of Queen Victoria. Alfred was heartily endorsed, but his mother didn't want him to do it. Somebody should probably have checked. Greece eventually settled on another bewildered 17-year-old, Prince William of Denmark, who was crowned as King George I and put in a solid half-century shift before being shot dead in 1913 by an assassin who was an anarchist or a lunatic, conceivably both. There was then a whole thing in 1917 when King Constantine I was forced off the throne due to his perceived sympathies with Germany and replaced by his son Alexander. Alexander died three years later, aged 27, due to an infected monkey bite. In 1920, Greeks voted to restore Constantine I. In 1922, Constantine had to quit again after falling out with the army. He fled into exile in Italy and died shortly afterwards. He was replaced by his son, George II. But in 1924, Greece abolished its monarchy and exiled George II to Romania. 
1935, Greece restored the monarchy and brought George II home. The results of that referendum, 97.9% in favour of George II resuming his duties, arched a few eyebrows, but another referendum in 1946 confirmed this judgement by a smaller, though still convincing margin, and bought the Greek monarchy another few decades, up until a bit before where we came in. Constantine II had become king in 1964 upon the death of his father, King Paul, joining a meagre fraternity of people entitled to wear both a crown and an Olympic medal. Gold for sailing at the 1960 Games in Rome. Constantine of Greece sailed to victory in the Dragon Class. The royal family have performed the traditional ducking of the new champion in the waters of Santa Lucia. It would not be the last time Constantine would find himself in choppy waters. Very shortly after his accession, Constantine was at the centre of a series of upheavals. In 1965, he sacked Greece's Prime Minister, Georgios Papandreou, unleashing chaos which resulted in 1967 in a coup d'etat by colonels unfavourably disposed to the king. Constantine tried and failed to stage a counter-coup and scarpered to Italy. His defenestration was confirmed by two referendums. The colonels held one in 1973 on establishing a republic and, depending on one's sympathies, received or orchestrated a 79% endorsement. The exiled king was, in observance of local tradition, stoical. For six years, far from my country, I have subjected myself to the strict discipline of silence. I have ignored attacks, insults, and provocations. All that remained for me to do was to preserve the prestige of the crown. The civilian government, which followed the collapse of the junta, held another referendum on this day in 1974, confirming it. This is authentic audio of Greeks being pretty excited by the result. All may not be lost, however. King Constantine II is still alive, aged 82, and returned to Greece nine years ago. He is reportedly philosophical about the decision his people made to unemploy him 48 years ago, but must occasionally ponder the example of, and we said we'd come back to it, Simeon II, last Tsar of Bulgaria. Overthrown and exiled in 1944, aged seven, he returned in the mid-1990s, went into politics, and in 2001 was elected Prime Minister. And it wouldn't be the first time Greece has changed its mind. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Mark Galliotti, Terry Stiasny and Yossi Meckelberg. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.